The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode is powered by DEN Certifications. You want to deepen your practice or supplement your knowledge for your day-to-day job? You'd be surprised to know how many certifications we do offer. All levels of Reiki, intuitive healing, compassion, animal communications, and of course, our deep 400-hour meditation teacher training program. Go to denmeditation.com and look under certifications for more information. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal Rabinowitz. I am your host, and I am the founder of Den Meditation. I sit down today with Muhammad Al-Samawi. This conversation is intense in a great way. He was a practicing Muslim in Yemen. It's where he grew up, but he's now lives in the States, and he's an interfaith activist and speaker. His story is incredible. It's not only a story of someone who questioned his own faith, started asking the questions, and actually finding the answers. This is also someone who got caught in the middle of a civil war, and almost died like four times. And just by putting a request out on Facebook and four people started actively on the West trying to get him out. And he got saved, obviously. He's here today talking to us. But the story is intense. It's incredible. It's actually a book called The Fox Hunt. And it's going to turn into a movie. And we talk about everything that results from this. We talk about how you start questioning your faith, why. We talk about is things are fate and destiny involved or is it about action. One of the things he talks a lot about that I love is about how if you actually just have an idea and you actually make action, anything can happen, no matter how small or big the idea is. And his whole life story is proof of that. The fact that he is here safe from four people who had no connections to anything, just knew they wanted to save him. I mean, really this, again, we dive into religion, we dive into spirituality, we dive into faith, we dive into danger. We also talk a lot about Yemen and what's going on over there. His family is still there, his friends are still there, and how crazy it is to live kind of a dual life where he's now experiencing the freedom that he was asking about and he experiences all the benefits of living here but he's sad every day and he wants to spread his story so please listen to it so that more people understand and can do what happened to him and try and help people and just understand there are good people everywhere and ultimately when we feel like nothing's going right in the world humanity will save us i really hope you love this episode as much as i loved actually talking to him he really is incredible and don't forget there is a personal practice where he kind of walks us through his moments of gratitude that he does on a daily basis so excited to be sitting here with Muhammad al-Samawi today. He grew up a practicing Muslim in Yemen, and he's now an interfaith activist. That alone is incredible transformation, which I'm so excited to dig into. But he also escaped a brutal civil war with the help of a plan that was engineered from relative strangers from him reaching out on Facebook. This story is incredible. He actually wrote a book about it called The Fox Hunt. It's going to become a movie because that is how unbelievable it is, how intense it is. It's beautifully written. And it's not only this incredible book about surviving and escape and people's connections and just having faith in people and humanity. It also really does teach you the lessons of like listening to yourself and asking the right questions and hearing the answers. So I'm so happy to have you here. I mean, since we connected a long time ago, I've been dying to have this conversation. I poured through your book so quickly because like I said, not only is it beautifully written, it's just one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And it's your story. 
thank you, first of all. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you say that. Uh, no, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the book just helped me a lot in my life in some way. Uh, as I told you before the interview, uh, it was kind of like a therapy that I needed to get it out of my system. And uh, I'm happy that now the book has been translated to seven languages. And Incredible. As, as you say, now they're making a movie about it. I mean, it's insane. When you say it was like therapy for you, did it also help relieve some of the trauma. Now, again, I mean, we're going to get into all of this, but just so the listeners know, like, he was literally hiding in a bathroom while there's a civil war going around him. He was targeted for so many reasons, A, for questioning faith, but B, he'd moved to the South to get away from this and only went to the heart of the civil war, where now he, by being a Northerner, was actually the enemy. So he was an enemy in his own home country, and he couldn't even move like into the hallway. He couldn't go anywhere without he knew if he was spotted, he would die. And you had multiple moments you probably should have died. And we'll get into it because it is exciting. But just asking towards your therapy question, did that help with some of, I'm guessing, the trauma that you must have still had after all this was said and done? Yeah, I remember that uh, the first page I started writing from about the book, uh, the first page I started just crying and just get out from my system. Uh, I wanted to finish the first page, and it took me two days to finish it in some way. Um, it helped me to have an agreement with myself. Uh, I felt always guilty. Uh, I felt guilty that I escaped from the war and my family is still there. I felt guilty that I was targeted and why me and all these questions came to me. But writing the book, like, you know, it just get it out from my system. And I'm happy that I'm alive. Well, actually, that's an amazing place to start because I get the guilt. But let's talk about it because so many of the questions that come up for me, and I want to start at the beginning, which is you were raised a devout Muslim, like pretty much everyone there. I mean, mm -hmm. that's not an unusual thing. And you also were raised, you had a disability, which you still have. And I'm curious to know, how was it as a child in that scenario? And when you started even questioning your faith, because it started early, it started before you eventually met someone who actually gave you the Bible to read, but, and we'll get there, but you started questioning it before that. There were many moments, and was it part of your disability? Was it just the fact that you had this mom and dad who are very modern, actually, even though they are devout Muslims, or was it, you know, just something inside of you? I would say first um, that I was I'm very lucky that I have such amazing parents. Both of my parents are medical doctors. Which is I incredible. Actually, Mother, too. Actually, all my siblings are medical doctors. I'm the only one who doesn't become a doctor. It's Me like too, a, by the way. <laughs> it's like a Jewish family kind of living in Yemen in some way. Um, no, um, my parents, like when I, when I was like a child, I was feeling jealous from other kids because they can play football, they can ride bicycle, and I couldn't do anything of that. But because I have an amazing parents, they taught me that I shouldn't be jealous from other kids and that God gave me a disability for a reason. And that's why I was always searching for why God gave me this disability. What's the reason of my disability? So, um, you know, my childhood was a little bit rough because I couldn't play a lot with other kids. They were making fun of me, maybe because of how I walk, uh, how my hand looked like. So um, in the end, English was kind of my, my, my friend. I was always tr trying to read and to know more. But when I was in school, I was always asking questions, which is sometimes they tell us that God has a reason for that. But I always thinking that God gave us a mind, so we can always question what we are learned about. Um, one thing, for example, like, you know, uh, came to my mind when, we, when they teach us that, uh, you know, in Islam, for example, uh, men can marry four wives. 
Uh, and I asked, like, you know, why? Like, you know, that's such a question like this. And then the um, teacher told me, like, you know, there is a reason from God, and you will know that in the future. I said, like, yeah, but can you tell me what's the reason right now? And he, th- he thought that I'm young. And in the end, he kicked me out from the class. <laughs> uh, and that's the reason. Like, you know, I felt like, you know, God gave me a disability. And the disability, like, made me thinking different maybe a little bit. And that's why I'm very lucky to have it. And you also said in the book, off of that, that in the Quran, it, it says you should question. Of course. But yet, you're not allowed to question. So it's like such a disconnect of the religion, and many religions, by the way, not just being Muslim. It's like so many religions really... At the core, it is about questioning and growing and evolving. But then when you do that, there's what do you think it is? Do you think it's fear? Do you think it's control? Yeah, I, w- I would say it's not about the religion itself. I think it's because of the dictatorship systems that we, we have, especially in the Middle East and, and a lot of, lot of yeah. area in the world. Uh, in such system, they want you always to be the same. They don't want you to act different. They don't want you to be... They don't want you to, a- to ask questions out of the box because then you are threatening their power. Um, they want you, for example, like in Yemen, uh, they don't want us to protest against the government or why we don't have good hospitals, why we don't have good education system. So they always like try to target you to think yeah. about a fake enemy. And so you can put your all your power on that fake enemy instead of them, instead of tell them like why we don't have such services. And at that time, you find like there is kind of like uh, hate messages or, you know, there is some ignorance in some way. And that's what I was trying to fight. And so you say that you were always looking for the gift of your disability, mm-hmm. and you became very studious because of it, right? You, I mean, you're, and your parents, like you said, your parents are very educated. Your whole family is very educated, and that's part of also the reason I remember in the book you said you questioned that teacher was because you're like, wait, why does like the the man get to benefit and have all these whys, but the woman who I've seen my mom and I've seen my sister and they're so smart and they're the same and they're equal, like why is there an inequality? So that's why I keep going back. It's like, I and not that there might be the answer, I keep being like, so what was it? Or was it a combination of like the disability that just made you inquisitive because you were learning so much and like probably exposed to just more information? Or was it also just the fact that even though your parents weren't directly teaching you to question, what they didn't realize is by them just being themselves and showing you this example of actual intelligent equality, it actually made you question too. I'm sure like some households did not have that where the mom probably was not working and you actually just had that around you as what you knew. I would say both. Uh, Definitely my parents played a big role in my life and they they helped me to have the education that I need. They helped me to be who I am. They helped me when I wanted to read books. They helped me to do that. When I want to watch movies, they would help me to do that. But also my disability played a big role in that. not only that, like my parents also taught me that not only about religion, but also about the society and the culture itself. I, I remember, for example, in, in school, uh, a teacher told us that um, the woman is like an apple, a red apple. And the red apple is nice because it has this red skin, which means that women need to cover her body all the time so that she will become beautiful. But what if you bite from the apple? <laughs> the apple starts to be brown. And that's why women can't cover her body because the bacteria, and that's what he taught us, although that's is wrong info, <laughs> but he said that the bacteria comes to the apple and that's why the apple became brown. And I wish if I told him that 
he should blame himself because he's like the bacteria. Right. The apple. Don't blame the apple. Like, you know, for oh my God. By the way, that we can bring up the whole, a whole another movement with that. But, but, but it is my, true. My, my family always was supporting me in, like, to think out of the box, not only about the religion, but about also um, other things about the society. Which is amazing. However, they were very religious and they did, which is okay, but they also still followed some of the same thoughts of like of Jews are the devil, the U.S. is the devil and all those things, right? Which you did too because that's how you were raised. So when you started questioning things and started asking, was the first time you started questioning more about that stuff after you met Luke who was a teacher for you? Is that you met Luke, who was a teacher at yes. the university? Uh, no, I mean the, the the first thing that I think it makes big impact for me when when it, when I became no more Luke uh, as a person, and he was an amazing human being, except that he was Christian, and I felt bad about him because I thought that if and Christians weren't good either, right? Like theoretically. No, right? I mean we we taught also. That's also about the education. If we can speak about it, like you know, there's a lot of things I learned in school which is was a wrong info. But they taught us that um, Christians uh, will go to hell because they don't believe on Muhammad the messenger. And I felt bad about Luke because he was an amazing human being. And I thought that, you know, he's the perfect human being, except he's not Muslim. Now he will go to hell for that. So, so you were just like sweet, like you're, you were so upset for your friends. Yeah. And that's why I tried to convert him to Islam. I mean, it's so amazing. Like, it, it, do you look back and kind of giggle now at like sometimes... Like when you see how you, what your thought process is now, you're like, oh my god, what a cute like. It's a very sweet notion. Like you were trying to convert him to Islam, not because you felt like everyone had it was because you really were nervous for his fate. Yeah, I mean, uh, in general, like I was also searching for my own peace inside me, um, and I thought that you know by converting Luca would do something meaningful in my life and you know bring bring someone new to the religion and I would save Luke from hell. Now here's one of the things you say in your book because then eventually he ended up, they made a deal, which I love this story, which is you went and you brought him the Quran as like a going away present, right? right? Like, you've been so amazing to me. And I love that he took it, but he said, I will read this, if you, basically, if you read this and gave you the Bible. And then you started with the Old Testament. He was like, no, the New Testament. Right. But still, like, you guys did an exchange of, and you did it, which I thought was so beautiful. But before that, because I do want to talk about that, you um, said when you met Luke, he had changed your point of view on the entire world. Now, this is before you even read but the Old Testament. So what did he change for you before it was about religion? In everything. Like, for example, like his love for Yemen, even though that, you know, he's not Yemeni, uh, he loved about the Islamic culture, even that he's not a Muslim. And the way how he's trying to build, like, bridges between the communities. I think part of why I'm a peace activist is part because of his messages to me and how he showed me the world from a point of view that I didn't know anything about it. N let me tell you something. It, without Luke and that in that moment of my life, I would be the same person as a lot of a lot of people think in a bad way about Christians or Jews. Uh, he's the one who's opened my eyes about things that I didn't know about it. Uh, even when I met his wife, and his wife was so nice with me, and um, she she even welcomed me to come to her home. Like uh, that was all like you know amazing like things that changed my mind in a lot of ways before the Bible. That's incredible. So it was really just seeing him interacting with people who weren't like himself and being so open that actually started making you be like, wow, I didn't realize people could do that. And love and love because I thought that you know. Uh, someone as a Christian or a Jew, you know, they w he will have such hate messages against Muslims or against uh, against Islam, but he would just have pure love for everyone, 
it's not about religion, it's just about human being, and that's what I love. Uh, he was not focusing about differences, he was focusing about similarities. And that's what teach me for me, that you know, instead of focusing about the negative impact about the religion, why I don't focus about the positive impact about how we are similar to each other. It's interesting, like he made you realize there are actual people and then there is religion. Like one doesn't have to dictate the other. True. What I love, and there is something that I, it always struck me in some way now when I go back there, but uh, let's say like, you know, in Judaism, you can still be a Jew even if you don't believe in God. Nobody come to you and say you're not a Jew. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in Yemen, uh, I will not say in Islam, I will say in Yemen mostly, uh, you can do that. You can be different from the others and you can still be a Muslim. Uh, let's say that you are pro-gays. Um, you can be pro-gays. Everyone hates gays in Yemen in some way. And uh, even if you are gay, you can show that you are gay or things like this. But uh, these are things that, you know, it opened my eyes in a lot of ways. That's interesting, too. It's like there's no room for any individuality within that. There is no room to be different. There is no room to be someone to question what you learn in school or what you learn in the culture or in the mosque or uh, on the TV. They want you just to be the same. And it's not that, uh, but I need to make clear that this is not the mistake of the religion itself. It's a mistake of the education system and the political situation there. That's so interesting. And do you feel like because you were born different, like right from, well, you weren't actually born. No, I didn't born with it, but it came to Really young, different. right, when yeah. you were a baby. But since a baby, you were different. Yeah. So do you think in a weird way that is part of the leg up, the fact that like, of understanding is because I think I, I think that it's not like later in your twenties you started to feel different. It's like you were different from day one, so it started to make you look at the whole construct. Uh, I, I would say it's not about my disability or how I was born. I uh, honestly think that it, there is many many people like me, even better than me in a lot of ways, and they are trying to change in the world. I think it's because of the education. Education play a big role. If you read books, if you open minded, that would like reading more. That makes you more open. That's like even even now. Um, you can see a lot of fake news. You can see a lot <laughs> of hate, a, a, lo a lot of hate like messages on social media, on news, news and TV or other places. And if you don't read, if you don't search for the truth for yourself, you will be the same thing like people who's following Al Qaeda because they think that they are good people. That's such an interesting message for us, like what we're going through in the U.S. right now too, True. because I feel like that's a huge thing. Everyone just kind of picks a side and then just fights for that side. And, you know, because you hear a lot of whatever, they're on that side, they can't be good people. You hear it a lot, and it, I'm al it always makes my stomach churn because it's like it, it can't be about sides because then you're not, like you're saying, searching for the truth because not everything that comes out of both sides' mouth is always fully true. And also that doesn't mean every single thing. It, it, it always makes me nervous because I'm like, I feel like the minute you start talking like that, what you're saying is you're shutting off trying to actually find out real information and you're just going with the flow just to be part of one side. Not only that, what I love about the United States, when I came to the United States, people asked me, like, you know, what do you love about the United States? Is it the buildings? Is it the cars? What is it? And I say... The freedom. It's the freedom. Like, yeah. you know, you have the freedom to think, you have the freedom to read, like, you have the freedom to tell your own opinion and nobody will come to kill you. And that's the most amazing thing that you have here in the United States. And you need to use it. Like if you have all the resources to do whatever you want to say or to to think clearly about it, use it. I know it's so interesting because for me, 
Like my thing always is like, speak your mind, blah, 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 because that's how I was raised and I was lucky to be raised that way. And then you realize there are so many people out there, Yemen as one of them, but so many other places that not only is that not how they're raised, so their thought process is totally different. Even if they thought to speak their mind, they wouldn't be allowed to. Yeah, I would not say Yemen. I would say individuals mostly or the society or the educational system. Uh, it's not only Yemen. It's a lot of, a lot of places in the world. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I meant to say that if that didn't come across. Um, but it is interesting. You forget because we do have so much freedom here. We actually forget sometimes yeah. that some. it's it not only are people not born with it they couldn't even exercise it if they started thinking exactly. about it the, they don't even know they should do that and, and then if they did know it they couldn't do it if they wanted to you know what hurts me the most um in yemen although that the, f- the elections usually it's just a fake elections and you know already that in advance <laughs> what are the results but every time i was going to elect because that's my role as a citizen and i want to practice my democracy by just going there even though i know that my vote will not make more sense and when it when I saw the elections here and people just sitting by homes uh. and they don't practice their own right, I would say like you know, do you know how much this is the value in Yemen? If we have such like system of election and you can really make a change, everyone would like go there. And I feel like you know people sometimes in the United States, you know, they don't really appreciate the freedom of speech you have, the freedom of democracy, and you know th- that you know your voice can really make a difference. Oh, my God, I wish we had this conversation before voting because it's no, it's so true. And a lot of people like I mean, I've heard everything from "Ah, it's a sham. And I'm like, at times, maybe, but it's not like a sham like it is elsewhere or it's like, oh, whatever, my vote doesn't count. It's going to go this way anyway. So who cares? And it is true. It's like we have such we're so lucky that you can have an opinion. You have a blessed country. Yeah, no, I agree. I always say that, like when people get angry on Facebook and saying, oh, that person's saying this and blah, blah, blah. Part of me is like, but that's part of the beauty of democracy. Like, you can't you can't have it if people aren't using it. And that's by true. using it means there's going to be an opinion you don't like, no matter what side you're on. There's going to be an opinion you don't like because that's the whole point, is to be able to hear both so that somewhere the truth finds its way out. Yeah, and if you don't like what, what someone posts on Facebook, then vote. Like, you know, you can do an action about right, it. Right, 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 right. So when you started all of a sudden, you're reading the Bible and you're noticing what I love too is a lot of similarities between the Quran and like it's a lot of similarities. Of course, there is, there is a lot of a lot of a lot of phrases. If you just translate it to English, it will be the same phrase. Like you no, know, I was reading in in the Bible in a lot of ways, uh, and that's what struck me a lot. And that's when I was shocking. Like, okay, if we have such similarities, why we are fighting each other? Right. Right. I mean, isn't it amazing? I always think about almost every religion out there has the same tenets at the core. Yeah. I mean, almost all. So it's always weird that it causes such strife when everyone really believes the same stuff. It just might, in their mind, end up somewhere different. But at the core of wha- how you're supposed to live your life, it's almost all the same. Yeah, for me, it was a little bit weird because I thought, like, okay, like we, we are so similar to each other. So I wanted to ask Christians and Jews, like, you know, if you have the same message of Islam, why we are fighting each other? So... I was lucky to find Christians in Yemen, but I couldn't find any Jews. But at that time, I found Facebook. Right, and that's amazing. You were really determined to find Jews, which is, uh, I mean, I'm actually at a loss for words because, again, people here might be like, oh, whatever, but you have to remember where he was raised, what the messages are around you constantly. Like, just being like, I want to go find a Jew, A, is not easy at all because they're (laughs) not there, but B, it's dangerous. No, they they were there, but they weren't in a very kind of like... uh, Their own little... Their own little circles, and it's really hard to reach them because everyone was trying to kill them or everyone trying to blame them. Uh, So they were really trying to take like security as as a big reason. 
But when I was on Facebook, it was crazy because I was just trying to find Israelis because I thought that Israelis are Jews and that's it. Like, you know, that's how I would find Jews. And that's how I started doing my own online activities uh, on Facebook. Um, first question I asked to someone, he said, like, you know, why do you hate us? <laughs> and he said, like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I know a lot of Muslims and Jews and Christians, they live in peace. And then he started showing me things that I didn't know about anything about it. And that's when I found the purpose of my disability. Like, God gave me this disability, so I became an interfaith activist that can tell the similarities between the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran. And that's what I started doing it until the moment when I decided that, you know, I was doing it online only. Now it's time for me to meet a Jew in person. I mean, I really got the chills when you when you said that. Was it interesting for you to all of a sudden be online? None of these people know you. They don't know you as a child. <laughs> they don't know who you were. Did you feel like you could shift your identity a little bit or your personality? Oh, the first thing, let me tell you something. Uh, the first thing, I didn't know how to use Facebook at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I started trying to search for Jews, and then I found these beautiful Israeli girls, so I started adding them as friends. <laughs> and you can imagine, nobody except my request, like the Nigerian prince, you know, when he yeah, asked yeah, me yeah. like a million dollars or something <laughs> like that. But um, the more that I was doing activities on online, the more that I thought that, you know, I need to do it. And one time, I applied for a conference in uh, Bosnia, in Sarajevo. Uh, it was the first conference that I go to. It's called the Muslim Jewish Conference. And I traveled there to meet the first Jew in my life. And you know what? The first Jew I met there in the conference wasn't only a Jew. He was a Jew, Israeli, and gay. It's like three in one for me. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it changed my mind in a lot of ways. Not only that, but because I found Muslims even. Who, m woman, for example, who doesn't wear hijab. But still, she's a Muslim. In my country, I thought that as a Muslim woman, you need to wear hijab. I found Muslims who doesn't speak Arabic. In my country, they taught me that Muslims need to speak Arabic because that's the way how they can read the Quran and that's how they can pray in Arabic. And I found that, you know, I was literally really living in a small circle in my country and there's a lot of things happening in the world that I didn't know anything about. How did that make you feel? Were you angry? Were you sad? Were you excited? Like, what? Excited. excited. I was very excited. I was excited that, you know, now it's my mission to be from online activist to be an activist and the real person. I need to change my society, I need to change my family and my, my friends, they need to know the truth. Now, how naive was that? Of a Very naive, because I, in the end, when I was there, yeah. um, when I was in Bosnia, for example, I was so motivated by uh, Israeli and Palestinians who do kind of like work together. And it's like, oh my God, I need to do that also in Yemen. <laughs> but then I, div I, you know, I forget that, you know, in Yemen we don't have, uh, um, a good security system, Al-Qaeda is everywhere, Houthis is everywhere. So if you are start, start speaking about Jews, about Israelis, about uh, Christians, then you are a target. And that's what had happened to me. I didn't put myself only as a target, but I put also my family in risk. So that's what's so interesting. So you started, it was like you actually were trying to create a group of like, let's all get together and meet. And you got in trouble. I mean, it became very clear. You started getting death threats and... And your parents, like, I mean, it was just not good. And you yep. knew that it not, like you just said, it doesn't, didn't just put you at risk, but your whole family could have been targeted. So you put it aside. Now, one of the things you said in your book was you never, I'm not trying to see if I actually have it, but it was something about you were being really, ho you felt really hollow when you had to do that. So let's talk about when, because it feels like, and you even said it, when I, I realized the purpose of my disability was to become an interfaith activist. So it feels like that was the moment you kind of started to discover like your purpose 
here. And I feel like we all have them and it can be anything. And you started to discover yours and you were all excited. So then you put it aside. We talk a lot about on this show here. What does that mean when you get off course of your what you're supposed to do? How does that feel? Like you said it felt hollow, but what did that... Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, you know, when I came back from Bosnia, from Jordan, from the conferences where I were, and then I started receiving threats, the first threats I received it was on Facebook. Uh, someone with the Son of Bin Laden picture, and he like, oh gave, me, gave, gave me threats. And the first thing I thought that, you know, I need to be away from the internet. I need to, like, you know, like, respect my family's safety and respect my safety also as well, and I will forget about it. And for a while, I thought that, you know, I shouldn't do it. Um, my dad, uh, when he discovered all my activities and things like that, he told my mom and he told my brothers and sisters that, you know, Muhammad shouldn't use internet anymore <laughs> because when he go use internet, he use it in a bad way. And then I went to a coffee shops in Yemen. Like I was sneaking to a coffee shop near, near our neighbor and neighborhood and started using the internet a little bit because I missed it. I missed what I was doing. It's a little bit hard when you know the goal of your life and then someone tell you you can't do it. Yeah. You see, you find yourself like, I need to do it because that's the purpose of my life. The feeling inside my heart, the bumps, like, you know, I was feeling in my chest and that I was doing the right thing and I was very comfortable about it. And that's why I was trying always to fight. Even when my dad told me not to do it or when my family was against me or when my friends, my friends accused me for being crazy. Uh, my best friend, Ahmed, he was thinking that, you know, he shouldn't call me anymore because I would put him also on risk. Uh, so I start feeling like you know um, I'm losing everyone in if I want to do that, but I couldn't forget what I saw in Bosnia. I couldn't forget what I learned from reading the Bible and the Quran, and I couldn't forget even what Islam teaches that you know we need to build bridges between between each other, even if we are different. And that's what I was trying to do. It's so powerful, and it's because here you are feeling like lonely. You're losing your whole life, but your purpose took over everything. Yeah, not only that, but <laughs> and, and then I received the threats, the real threats, and the phone calls, and I was really feeling that maybe I was doing the, the wrong thing. Uh, in one time, when I was hiding from Al Qaeda, and I was in in Aden, I was in small, I was hiding in a small apartment. I was hiding in the bathroom because I thought that the bathroom would be the safest place to be hide from Al Qaeda, and I prayed to God in the bathroom, and I said, like you know, I thought what I was doing is the right thing. If you were still like satisfied about what I was doing, please save my life, and he did. I got, I just got tears in my eyes from that because I do have so many questions, and we should actually talk about. So, with these death threats, you finally were like, I, I should move out of here so I don't, my family doesn't get harmed. Correct. And you even took like a crappy job because you were actually very well employed. Clearly, yes. you did very well every job you took. Like yeah. people loved you. I mean, that was very obvious. But you wanted anything to get further I, south. I, I just, I just wanted a reason to be in south. I wanted to have like just like a basic life there and just start all over and be away from my family because the threats that I was receiving it was in the same city and I thought that if they will come to kill me, for example, let's say that you know uh, Houthis will come to my home, they will not just kill me, but kill they everyone. also will kill my family because we, as a Yemen, we are family-oriented. I live in the same house with my parents, with my brothers, with my sisters, and I was really afraid about them. So when I moved to Aden, I thought that I would be safe, but then I found myself that I bought myself away from Houthis, but I was in front of Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda was everywhere. So I escaped from place to be in a horrible place, uh, and then I started losing hope, like, you know, what should I do? And the civil war started. 
I mean, you maybe you went to work like maybe one day, right? Yeah. I mean, you got there and you went to work one day, and then and then everything everything very fast came. Yeah, came and then you were hiding, hiding because you. I was hiding. I was at, when the civil war started. I thought that okay, now it's time to go back to Sana. <laughs> But I couldn't go back to Sanaa. You couldn't even walk outside. No, because the, the civil war started, like extreme groups started being everywhere. One of the extreme groups was just like near my building. And they gave this kind of like extreme hate messages about anyone from the north or anyone which who... Which is you. Who, which is like anyone from the north, anyone who has like the last name of my family name is like they accuse it for being uh, Shia, which is like part of Houthis, which is not true. But anyway, like at that time, I couldn't go out from in the streets. They can recognize me from the skin, from how I look like. They can recognize me from my accent. It's like someone from Texas lived in New York in some way, so you can know exactly that he's from the north, not from the south. And from my last name, they were searching for IDs, and if they saw my last name, that's it. I would be in a big danger. You had so many targets on you. You had the visual, you oh, had the everything, sound, the everything, name, like ev everything. And also my disability didn't help me a lot. Like, you know, I can't run. I couldn't do a lot of things. I don't drive. I... I basically was in my apartment and I was just feeling less hope. And then I thought that maybe should I, I should kill myself because if Al-Qaeda will catch me, they will not just kill me. They will, will torture, torture me first and then they will kill me. And I thought that, just, you know, if I kill myself, maybe it will be an easier place. But then I did one thing. I said to myself, why I don't post on Facebook asking people if they can help me out? Maybe someone will help me out. And I start mes sending messages to every single one in my contact. And... I was just asking, do you have a safe place for me? Can I go anywhere to be safe? And I thought in the first place that, you know, someone from Yemen would come to help me out. And I never thought that four Americans that I barely know would tell me, like, you know, we want to help you out. We received your message. We saw your post and we want to help you out. Actually, uh, in my book, I mentioned about Justin, who I never reached him, actually. I never asked him, like, even to help me out. But what happened is that Megan, who is one of the four people who's trying to help me out, she sent an email to all her contact information, all contact like all the people that she knows, and her email was, I want to help my peace activist friend from Yemen. Do you know anyone in Yemen who can help him? And Justin saw the message. Justin, by the way, he lives in San Francisco, and he saw the, the email from her, but she didn't know that I actually know Justin. Justin knows me, so he sent her an email that says, listen, I don't know anyone from Yemen except one person. And he's a peace activist. I think he will be able to help your friend. And he gave her my contact information. And then she told him, Justin, I am speaking about Muhammad. It's the same person that I'm speaking about. And that's how he became involved. So these four people that they barely know each other came together and they told me, we want to help you out. The first thing, which is funny, they asked me, where do you live? And in Yemen, we don't have buildings numbers. We only have buildings. So if someone wants to come to my home, I tell him I am the second house near the supermarket from the right side. That's how <laughs> they can know where I live. And when they told me where do you live, and they told him like there's no building numbers, I, I started to know that they have nothing, no knowledge about Yemen. They don't know how any experience about military. They don't. They can't do any You're evacuation system. Like, how are these system. people gonna help me? But it was the only hope, and they they were able to help me out in the end. I mean, there are so many. We're gonna get into it because. If you guys aren't at the edge of your seat now, I don't know what would make you. But it's Justin's a perfect example how he got that email and was like, oh, I kind of I met this person once. He could help. And there was this weird connect. Justin, especially more than anyone, had these weird connections. He kept having these weird connections to everything that happened. Um, and I feel like it is so fascinating. I, I cried at the part of the book when 
there's a guy Daniel who is also helping you, who is incredible. And he was he was like your lifeline. It seems like because he was also your emotional support on the ground. Like he, he, he was the one you would text like I'm gonna die. What's happening today? He was he was responding. I, in one time, it felt like he he never sleep because I was sending him messages and I know twenty four hours a day. And he always responded. I said, hey, what's up? Like, and whenever I wanted to cry or whenever I want to express my fear, he was the one that you know receiving all these like uh, messages. Uh, he was literally like your emotional support. The four of them, yeah. Like the way the way how they, in thirteen days, they stopped their lives. Thirteen days. I know. I'm getting teary eyed. Actually, just j- just to help someone which is far away from who them, they barely knew. Who they Some barely they didn't know at all. Who they barely know. Who they just trying to help them to help him through social media. It's crazy, and they have no experience in military or uh, diplomacy or nothing. <laughs> like or when politics. when I when I asked Daniel, like, why did you help me? And he told me something that makes me like, he told me my, his grandmother escaped from the Holocaust. And the way how when she escaped the Holocaust, she wanted just anyone to help her out and she couldn't find anyone to help her out. And she was trying to make all her way. And he said, I wish if someone helped my grandmother because at that time it would make her life easier. And when you asked me to help you out, I just couldn't get it out. He couldn't get out his grandmother picture from his mind. And he said like, I just need to help him out. Um, there was a part when you s- you finally were like, I'm having so many conversations. So you sent one email and you put everybody together, four people at that time. Yeah. And where I started to cry, and I'm going to do it, is Megan, who was kind of the first person who like got your email and then sent it out to everyone. She responded, oh, my God, what a great idea to put us all together. But hold on. L- I, this is when I cried. Let me loop in the seven other people who are working hard right now that you didn't even know. Nothing. And so all of a sudden, this team of, like, the two people who might have responded, it became four, then became 11. Then it was, like, 13 or 14 people. People that I never, n- I never heard about their names before, they sent me messages on Facebook and said, like, hey, we are trying to help you out. Hang in. Like, you know, y- you are. Give us the inspiration. And it's like, who are they? <laughs> like, you know, like what they are doing? I didn't know. Like and that's that is so beautiful. Th- and no, that's the amazing also how they use social media. Like I remember when Daniel told me, uh, I, he posted on Facebook. He says the first post he posted when I asked him to help. He said, "Does anyone has any idea how to help a Yemeni to escape from the war in Yemen?" <laughs> and a friend of him from Sweden, he sent him a message. He said, "Like I think your account has been hacked." Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. It's like what be- question because is because this? Because it's a weird post, like you know that you are posting something like that. Uh, like Natasha was, she told me something which was so beautiful for me. Uh, she was working in in her company, like in 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 Tel Aviv. And while she was working, everyone was thinking that she, oh my God, she was working really hard, like in the laptop, and she's searching for something. And everyone thought about that she was working for the company, but she was working for me, trying to let me escape from Yemen. And she stayed late every day just to let me try to help me out. And that's the amazing thing that how did they spend time? Uh, not eating sometimes, uh, don't go out at all just because they're trying to help someone that they barely know. And remember, like, just for people out there, they don't know anyone in Yemen. They're not connected to the government. So this is like, they're basically like, how do we do this? And what's so incredible about it, there was a few scenarios that fell apart, um, and they were all just getting through every... It was funny. It's like one contact led to another, and they just kept going and talking and talking. And they were keep asking. And kept asking, and they didn't give up. But I mean, what I also found amazing was the financial connection. So when Daniel finally got in touch through a friend of a friend of a friend to this military guy who kind of became a strategist for you because <laughs> he knew that situation. He yeah. was telling you, like, don't leave, do this, don't go here, right. save that. Like, he knew just the practicalities of being on the ground, which I kind of was like, this is amazing. You now have this high-powered strategist giving you direct advice. But Daniel, he was, I think the first thing was 
before the airports closed, you, you missed the window. He was like, I can get a plane to take him out. Right now, it's just going to be it was something like seven hundred thousand dollars, seventy thousand. It was what was the, the it, fifty or fifty thousand? Yeah, first of all, it was uh, fifty thousand dollars. First of all, it was uh, fifty thousand, and then it became seven hundred thousand, and then it became fifty thousand. Right for different scenarios, for but different, it was fifty thousand for the plane, and all of a sudden Daniel's like, fifty thousand is a lot of money. No, that, that, Daniel didn't ask him even to bring like a an, an airplane to help him. He was out. just like, how can we help him? He was like, here's Ex- a plane, exactly. it's 50,000. No, he, he he was he was just asking him, like, you know, do you have any advice for Mohammed right. to hide from Al Qaeda? And this man, okay, yeah, you know what? We can send an airplane for him to help him out and you need to pay fifty thousand dollars. And he was think, saying like I wasn't asking about that. I was just asking, like, you know, how he can, like... But then he said yes, which I love. He and was that's an amazing thing. Like, you know, that it's someone that he, he barely know. And uh, But then it you the airport's closed. Like, within that conversation, basically, it. the airport's closed. No. So that went away. And then it became a helicopter situation for, like, 700,000 or no, something crazy. The, the boat, it became 700,000. The, ba- the boat was 700,000, which is what you... Right. The boat, which you missed, too. The boat went away because there was too much bombing and stuff going on. No, it was it was ridiculous to ask for seven hundred thousand dollars for a boat, for a fishing boat, just to drive him away. That yeah, crazy. and it was a lot of money, and nobody can able to do it, so we didn't do it. And then they told us, okay, then we will send like a helicopter for Mohammed and like, to to help him. And then at that time, like until today, unfortunately, we are speaking in a situation where Saudi Arabia they don't allow any flight to go in Yemen or like you know to help anyone, so they couldn't send it. And then but what was interesting, before they knew they couldn't send it, they were like, can you get to your roof? Right. And uh, this is what I wanted to ask you. And so you're like, I don't know. I don't, I, like, you're, I, mean, I don't even know how you're functioning. You've barely eaten at this point. You're, in, you're like, anxiety is through the roof. So you're, like, just pumping adrenaline. It's just not a healthy scenario. And like you said, it's not like you can run. So you had to, like, climb up the stairs, and you discovered the door of the roof was locked. But one of the things you said was, I was relieved, It's so, that was so interesting. Why were you relieved at the moment of being like, I can't escape this way? Like, it, it could have been an escape, but you were relieved you couldn't do it. No. I mean, you can imagine like this. Uh, Al-Qaeda and their fighters and Houthis and all these, like, extreme groups, if they will see a helicopter just coming to, to let someone escape, they will think that I am either a Houthi or Al-Qaeda or someone rich who's trying to escape from that, and they will definitely bomb the helicopter. I was thinking, like, you know, how you can send a helicopter where all these fighters just, like, fighting, and then they will see a helicopter, and they say, like, hold on, let's stop. Let's this helicopter go away, and then we, we will continue fighting. No. So I felt like I know for sure that this plan will not work but in the end I didn't I didn't want to insult the military guy I didn't want to insult Daniel because they're trying to help me out so any option they were trying to tell me okay do that and I said okay I will do it it's like this do you know when you play a PlayStation game in some way and like I was kind of like the game itself and they were controlling me they would tell me turn right turn turn left so whenever they would tell me do something, even if I don't think so, it's a good idea. I was just trying, you know what, I will do it just in case because they're trying to help me out. And I don't want them to give up on me. I don't want them to tell them no. One moment when I, was evacu- like when I was communicating with Daniel uh, and N- Natasha, for example, I was doing smiley faces. I was just trying to show them that, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a very kind person. <laughs> and that's the smile face because I wanted to know that I'm a very kind person. And power I'm of an emoji. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, it's time to talk about our next Den Talks Live. These have been so great. You guys are going to be obsessed with this next one. 
It's July 26th, a Friday night at the La Brea location. We have Paul Selig. He is considered to be one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. He's written some incredible books. He does not do events very often, but he is going to be here to not only talk about what channeling is, to dive into that energy, but he's also going to do a reading for us. So how cool is that to be in the room and be able to have a chance to talk to someone who can channel? This is huge. It's rare. It's going to be amazing. Join us. Again, that's Friday, July 26th. Typical Dentalks Talks Live. You get your Q&A portion. There'll be fun goodies and giveaways as well and a chance to mingle at the end. We can't wait to see you. Go to DentalksPodcast.com and reserve your spot. But that's interesting. It's like you, but you knew, like you were saying in your gut, you're like, this plan doesn't work. And then the plan couldn't work and it yeah. didn't work. So in a weird way, like you said, your conversation with God Kind because of like in the same place. Because, and I'll ask this question after we go through kind of how you escape, because it is amazing. So then a final plan, you then ended up, there's so many, like you've said in your book, and I think we all do know, is there are good people everywhere. And you've had not only this team that was on, in the West, whether it be in Israel or the States, helping you out, different people. There were also people within like the... In Yemen, yeah. In Yemen, like even 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 the driver, like, you know. That's what I was going to uh, bring up. Um, one moment, like, you know, when Megan contacted the United Nations, the United Nations tell her, like, listen, if Mohammed can go to Sheraton Hotel, he will be safe and we have security for him and we will have everything for him. She told me, Mohammed, you, you need to go to Sheraton Hotel right now. I said, like, how? How am I going to get there? I don't drive. I have a disability and there's no taxis anymore. There's a war in the streets. Like, how I will find a car to drive me? And if they see me, they're going to recognize me in two seconds. That's it. And right. she said to me, I don't care. You need to just to figure it out. We try to, we're trying to help you out here, try to make some efforts. And I called Oxfam, uh, my organization was I used to work with, and called him like, please, <laughs> please send me a driver to drive me from the point A to point to Sheraton, and that's it. I don't want anything from you. And they said, okay, we will try. But at that time, my phone died. So I didn't know what, what happens. Are they sending the car or not? And then after half an hour, I saw a car waiting near my building. And I said, I need to go right now because my phone is off. And if I don't call that driver or if he, if he called me and I found my phone is off, he might just move. So I made the move. I went to the car. When I, when I, when I was inside the car and I told him, go, 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 he looked to me. He said to me, who are you? And I said, I'm Oxfam. He said, what's Oxfam? That person was not from Oxfam. That person was actually making a very dangerous step by helping me drive me from all the way from my apartment to the hotel. And guess what? The four people who was helping me, they were helping me by social media, by Facebook. The worst thing can happen between us, they're losing the communication with me, which happened a couple of times. But that person, okay. he put the, his life in risk because if they catch him just helping me in his car and just trying to let me escape, they would just kill him. You know, when he just was actually moving, in his car, I was hiding in the back seat. There was like a lot of checkpoints and nobody stopped him because no one thought like someone like him from the South, you know, he looks like religious with a big beard, will hide someone like me in his car. And that's what was like a hero thing that he did, that he saved me and he drove me all the way. So as you, it's exactly as you say it, like it's not only from America or Israel or even like in Yemen, like, you know, I was very lucky to find this group that they're trying to help me out. Either they had, had an intention to help me out or they didn't have intention in the first place. 
How, I mean, it, it's so nice and such a nice reminder for all of us to remember, like, there are good people everywhere. But, like, how do you know who it is? Or you don't, and you just pray. When I was in the UN, and that's also a crazy story, uh, when I was uh, in the hotel, and then I met people, like, they are Yemeni, but they work in the United Nations, and I told them, like, hey, like, you know... Uh, I want to be evacuated with you. And they said, sorry, but, you know, we only has orders to help you out with the hotel, with, like, you know, to stay with us a couple of days. But, you know, we are actually leaving soon and we can't take you with us. And I found myself the next day alone in Sheraton Hotel, only with the staff of the hotel. And I felt myself, that's it. My life now will end. I sent a message to Daniel, Justin, Megan, and Natasha. But again, just to interrupt you for a second, to remind people, this is, again, one more escape plan that disappeared right in it, front of your it, eyes. It's like you watched other people escape and oh, they couldn't I, take you. At that moment, I lost hope because Sheraton Hotel is one of the biggest hotels in Yemen. And at that moment, when the UN left, I know for sure that either Saudi Arabia will attack it or an extreme group will come because there's no security anymore and it's tr in a strategic place. So I said, that's the end. So I sent a message to the four of them. And said, listen, like, you tried everything <laughs> now, but I want to tell you something. Don't feel guilty if you heard that I had been killed because Ugh. I think that's, that's the end. Like, I, I don't know where to go. Like, that's it. I'm staying in the hotel. I can't go to the apartment. I don't know where to go. And now I'm stuck in a hotel that there's no UN anymore. And oh my God. the moment, the three, three of them, Justin, Megan, Natasha, they told me, no, 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 don't worry, we're trying to help you out, we're trying to call senators, we're trying to call someone, there is a way that we can help you for sure, except one person who didn't send me the same message, which is Daniel, he didn't tell me like, hey, don't worry, like, no, you will make it, he actually sent me a piece of music for a boy named Joey Alexander, uh, he's now nominated for two Grammy Awards, he was like 14 years old, playing at Daniel apartment, like he... He was practicing in his apartment, and then Daniel sent me a video of he playing Summer Over the Rainbow. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I was listening to the music, and I was crying, <laughs> because for me, I felt like that's goodbye from Daniel, which he wanted to say, like, you know what, I agree with you, it's <laughs> the end, now goodbye. And I felt that he said that, but the powerful of the music, um, and the powerful also for Daniel, like when he sent it to me, and he wanted me to communicate with the hotel staff and just show them that... I'm trying just to escape, and I'm not an enemy. I'm just like a human being like you. And they helped me out in a lot of ways. Uh, that's the power thing. How did this group of people, you were already inspired to be an interfaith activist. That was before all of this happened. And then, you know, these people indirectly already inspired you by meeting them at these organizations. How did what they did for you change you? And I, not just being alive. I mean, in, in a more of a sense of like, how did it inspire you differently than you were already inspired by these types of religions and faiths and people coming together? I and I believe that if if anything you want to do, it will happen. It will happen. Uh, these four people who helped me out, it it tells you that small things really matter. They don't have any experience in military operations. They they work some like Justin at that time was doing stand up comedy shows. Uh, they have no kind of like expertise in such evacuation, and then. They spent 13 days just trying to help me out. And in the end, they were able to help me out, even though that I live far away from them. I was surrounded by Al-Qaeda fighters, by Houthis. And you got caught by Al-Qaeda. By Yeah. But like I, I, <laughs> I, I, I had like a crazy story. You basically called your mom and said bye. Yeah. Ugh. 
Yeah. But the way how they helped me out, the way how he, they were always like with me and they never gave up on me, that was the amazing thing. Even when I escaped from, from Yemen, I, when I was in Djibouti, um, a normal person would say, like, you know what, he's now in Africa. Let him now figure it out. You know, he will be fine. But they didn't do that. They would tell me, like, you know, what he would do in Djibouti. They were trying even to help me out. I arrived to Djibouti, by the way, and I didn't have any visa. I didn't have, like, as a Yemeni, I need to have visa to go to Djibouti. And we were the first Yemenis ever to escape from the war, we escaped through the Indian military operation. So let's talk about it really quickly so people know. So basically, after all these things were going, there was one more effort, which was supposedly an Indian ship was coming to rescue their people going to Djibouti. Um, and everyone got an idea that if you could get a certain senator to sponsor, basically, Mohammed, then maybe, and again, it's always a maybe, they would also take him on the boat. Right. And again, this is where Justin always is like weirdly in the right place at the right time. <laughs> Everyone said, especially this one senator has connections to these people. And that one senator he'd interned for. Mark And Kirk. his family knew, right. Say the name again so everyone knows because... Yeah, Senator Mark Kirk. He used to be the senator of Illinois. And he had a good relationship with India. And he basically wrote a letter, CC John Kerry, and then... But again, out of your team, which feels big because you're alone, but in the long run, it's like 13 people, your team on the ground, Where one of them actually knew him personally. And that's that, and, and that's also the luck in, in a lot of ways so that crazy. you know they were able to do it. But uh, I need also to tell you something. Uh, what India did is just an incredible thing. Like, first of all, not only to take me, but they also take other Yemenis with me. And that shows you how much India just didn't care about individuals, just care about human beings to be safe. I remember when I was in the military uh, operation, they started playing Indian music because they didn't want us to hear the bombs. And they gave us food, even though they didn't expect that amount of Yemenis would be with me. They gave food to everyone. They didn't say, like, oh, we need to keep this food for us. And that's the amazing thing about India. But uh, in the evacuation, when I arrived to Djibouti, we were the first Yemenis ever to escape from the war. And the Djiboutian government didn't know what to do with us, so they put us in... Uh, a jail. And that's the funny thing here. Daniel, again, he posted on Facebook. He says, does anyone know anyone in Djibouti? <laughs> and a friend of him from Belgium who knows someone from Sierra Leone who used to work in Djibouti, he said, I know someone. So this man came, like like a, a Djiboutian person, he would start saying, where is Mr. Mohammed Samawi? And all the Yemenis like, who are you, man? What are they are asking about you? And I was out from the jail. And that shows you also the power of social media and like and how you can use social media really to help others, like you know, to in a very critical way. I know now these days people speak a lot about Facebook, like you know, and how Facebook can uh, make bad things about our privacy, but honestly Facebook helped me in a lot of ways. It's funny, Facebook's what got you in trouble and Facebook's what saved you. Facebook is like it's like a window for hope for me, honestly. Like without Facebook I wouldn't be here. Um, even like through Facebook, I started doing my interfaith activists. I was able to communicate with Jews, with Christians online and start asking questions. Um, just imagine like this. Without Facebook in, in Yemen, you will only have the propaganda from the government. You will, only, you will never listen to the other side. Because if you can't able to travel to meet them in person, Facebook gave you that chance. So it really, it didn't, 
you had all these questions, but Facebook actually gave you the information to like find the answers to those questions, Absolutely. which you couldn't have done. Yeah, and d just by it's click, it just by click, you can communicate with the other side, and you can know what's the other story. You know what they believe, and is it true about that, or is it not? So one of the things you say in the beginning of your book is, I couldn't fly away on prayer. So you know, as you're stuck in this bathroom and you're praying to God, but you needed action. So. I just wanted a little conversation about prayer and action. And like ultimately, when you look back on this whole experience, what do you think was at play? Or is it a combination? Was it, you know, divine faith? Was it fate? Was it destiny? Was it just action? Was it love? Like what, what part of all of this do you think? Because it really is an amazing feat that you're sitting in front of me today. Like it really is. You're a free man lecturing across the United States and other countries. You are, you know, I mean, it's amazing where you are from where you started and then just the fact that you even survived. Yeah, it, it's definitely a beautiful thing, but also it, for me, it hurts me so much because people think that they have a good story and beautiful story, and they don't know that, you know, many, many of Yemenis, they have an amazing, beautiful stories, but they're not able to tell you that because they can't, they can't leave the country. Uh, until today, Saudi Arabia are bombing Yemen. Uh, people don't, doesn't, can't use the airport anymore. There's no airport. And that's why people can't bring their own stories. If you think my story is beautiful, wait for the other 27 million Yemenis who have amazing, beautiful stories. Um, but in, in the end, I would say all the combinations helped me a lot. Um, I feel I'm lucky in some way because the way when I escaped actually Yemen, when I crossed the Red Sea, I crossed the Red Sea, by the way, in the Passover of 2015. Oh, so I was kind of like Moshe, but in the wrong direction, like, you know, <laughs> just going from Yemen to Djibouti. Um, everything was like really playing in a very good luck for me uh, when I was in Djibouti, and this man helped me out to be out from the jail. And even when they applied for, like when Daniel asked me, do you want to come to the United States? I said, of course I want to come to the United States, but how? Like, I'm just now like, you know, a Yemeni who escaped from the war in Djibouti. I didn't have luggage with me. I didn't take a shower. I, like I'm, I'm in a very big mess. And he told me like, we will try to apply for you, uh, like to give you invitations. And he just posted on Facebook, and also the other space post on Facebook, and they gave me all these crazy invitations to come to United States. I went to the embassy, and I thought I thought to myself, they will not give me the visa. They will reject my visa. And well, you know what? They accepted my visa. So I was very lucky in a lot of moments. The moment when uh, a friend. Saw a post on Facebook about me, and he doesn't know me at all. He just saw a post on Facebook, and he said, "Like you know what? I want to help him." He booked for me a ticket from Djibouti to San Francisco, even though he doesn't know anything about me by points. He used his points to buy for me a business class ticket. Oh my God! You can imagine that I was the most luxurious thing you'd seen. And not, not only that, I was in Djibouti in the Djibouti, <laughs> in Djibouti airport, no luggage, with a big mustache, dirty clothes, <laughs> and a business class ticket. Like everyone was thinking, like if this is really real, like if this is really happening. But it happens. I was really lucky in a lot of ways, and. Uh, I hope, like, honestly, the war will end in Yemen because people in Yemen, they don't really deserve to to be in such a uh, situation. Uh, I'm speaking now today with you, and I don't know really what's what's happening to my family, my friends, uh, my people, like, are, are suffering. They can't even find food. How often do you get to talk to them? I'm trying to talk to them as much as I can. There's no electricity in Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia bombed the electricity station. Uh, my family are using solar system. Uh, so it can bring them electricity every like every day, like around two hours, three hours. Uh, but still, it's really hard. Uh, 
they are afraid about me, and I'm afraid mostly about them. Um, I, I, I say that last week, like I thought about it a lot. In the past, I was enjoying my life just by listening to a music. Like if I listen to Britney Spears or Michael Jackson, a song, it will make like my day. Yes, that's, that's great. Or if I watch a movie, I'm a movie person, I love movies a lot. But now I, I lost the taste of life. I feel like, you know, how I can enjoy life while my people are suffering. And I know that there is a war that people, they can't find food. I have a friend of mine. His father is one of the most rich people ever in Yemen. He, like, he has, like, this crazy expensive cars. And he sent me a message on Facebook. He said, Mohammed, can you please lend me $50? And I was like, why? He said, like, because I don't have food. I want just to bring food to my family. And I was thinking, like, he's from a rich family in Yemen, and he's searching for $50. What about the others who doesn't have anything? anything. And that's what kills me a lot. Um, people in Yemen are suffering. It, uh, Yemen became like a big jail. No one can go out. Uh, I met someone from the State Department, and he said, you're so lucky. Maybe you are one of the last Yem Yemen Yemenis were oh. able to come to the United States. Unfortunately, now Yemen became one of the six countries that has a Muslim ban, so people in Yemen even can't come to the United States. Not only that, but m in the most countries of the world, they don't allow Yemenis to go. And not only that, there's no airport, so it just became crazy for people to leave. And that's why I hope the war will end. How hard is it for you to be somewhere in the U.S. also in the sense of, like, the U.S. has done so much for you, but it's also part of the problem over there so like how do you how do you balance that relationship it's hard uh, it's hard because i in in my in my beliefs i really know that you know the government sometimes are not reflecting what the american people want for example like you know when jamal hajifuji the journalist uh, the saudi journalist who has a green card who had a green card in the united states was killed by uh, saudi arabia i felt so scared because I am in the same situation like him. And if the government of the United States can't revenge for this man and can punish Saudi Arabia for what they did, they will continue killing people like me, like others, like other peace activists. And that's what makes me really scared. When I know that, you know, the president, for example, when he said that we are like very happy that we're selling billions of billions of dollars weapons to Saudi Arabia, and he knows that these weapons are using in Yemen. What do you think? How I feel? I feel really bad about it, but I know that for sure people in the United States they really care about Yemen and they really hope the war will end in Yemen. And I hope one day it will end. I hope so too. I mean, I know our government was just actually voting against him with the weapons, which is I yeah. mean, hopefully uh, knock on wood that actually continues. And and uh, Senator Chris Murphy and uh, Senator Sanders, like we're they're doing a lot of work, you know, to finish the, to finish the war in Yemen. Have you ever, is there any way to take your peace activism there, specifically about, you know, have you been able to do that, like make access that way? I mean, I am, I am in, in, in the board of an organization called Yemen Peace Project, which we try to advocate about the American role in the Yemen war. <laughs> We're trying to let people know, especially in the Senate and the Congress, that the American government are giving weapons to Saudi Arabia, and that's why the war is still continuing in Yemen. It's like investing in the war in some way. I know, it's so awful. It feels like you guys are just this like land that happened to be in the middle of this war that like almost has nothing to do with you. 
and it's awful because it's like y- it's your poor really people awful. are like just it's like the wrong place in the wrong time but they're in their own country not only that like imagine like this imagine if you live in a country like for example my parents are doctors but they don't work anymore they can't do anything because there's no work right now imagine like this people in Yemen want to live they want food they want to just to live a normal life if they can't find job if United States are not supporting to stop the war and they're actually investing in the war the only people now who's paying money to people to live in Yemen are extreme groups. Are the people who's trying to recruit like uh-huh. young people to say like, you know what, we care about you. This is the money for you to buy food. Join us. That's the only solution they have to live. And then you start blaming people like to become extreme. They became extreme because you don't stop the extreme source from the beginning. So I want to talk about that for a second because one of the things you said at the end of your book um, about that, about extremism, and I liked how you framed it because it w- there was no judgment in it at all. What you said was basically like when you take hope away from all these people and you take, like you just said, jobs and this and and you give them a power that's extreme, but the, they're saying we'll take care of you, all they're going to learn is that and those are the thought process that goes in their head. Those are the things they learn. And what you said is you can't blame them for that. No. So you have to find different ways to change it so people start to realize there's other ways to think, do, and act. But what I loved about what you said, especially with everything you've been through and especially what your country is going through right now, you said it with so much compassion. And do you think that's part of it? If more people, and, and not even just about what's going on in Yemen, in life, if more people could start looking at why people think a certain way and understanding it versus judging them for thinking that way, it would actually begin a peace process of all, of all angles? Absolutely. Uh, the only language that you know can make us live together is love. The language of love and l- the, the language of like we care about each other. Uh, when someone is suffering in Yemen and you tell them like, you know, you're suffering and I'm sorry about that. Here's some food for you or here's some medicine for you. People will say like, no, these are kind people that, you know, they care about us. I'll tell you an example. In Jordan, there is a big refugee camp. It's the biggest refugee camp I've seen right now in the world called the Zatari. And a Zatari, it has the biggest Syrian refugees who escaped from the war in Syria. There is Israeli organizations who go there and give some help for the refugees there. And you know what? The refugees take it and they engage with them because you know they know that these people didn't come to point weapons on us, they just care about us because we are human beings. And that's the language that we need to use. And instead of just supporting wars, we need just actually supporting the human beings people. who we need to live. Yeah. Yeah, it's what what can people what can we do, anyone who's listening? Is there anything people can do to help over there? In Yemen? Yeah. Call your senators. <laughs> okay. There is a big big decision will happen in the next few days. And we need everyone to call his senators and to show them that we are not supporting the United States uh, role in the war in Yemen. I will tell you honestly one thing that I really believe on. If the United States will end the support of the war in Yemen, the war will end in the next day. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think we all kind of know that. But people aren't aware. It's, it's and now it's in our hand. Just call your senators and ask them not to support the war in Yemen. Let's do your four years. This has been so amazing. Your four years really quickly. Favorite documentary or movie? I love movies a lot. It's like kind of my life. Uh, there's a movie that I love the most called The Square. It's uh, it's actually, I think right now you can watch it on Netflix. I think so. Uh, it's a Swedish movie. But I love the concept of The Square. It speaks about this person who likes to show everyone that he has the best car ever. 
and he likes to show that he is very handsome and he has this amazing clothes. And one day, his phone was stolen. And because it's an iPhone, he was able to know where is the location of his phone, and he found it as a building of refugees in Sweden. And he started to stereotype these refugees because they are poor, that they stole their phone. And that's the movie, how it started. I didn't want to burn the movie. I, mean, I just want people to watch the movie. But it just show us about the human connection and how, you know, we can sometimes stereotype people even though we don't know, know them very well. And that's exactly the case in Yemen. That's the case in everywhere where you start having judgment about someone because he's Jew or because he's Christian or because he's a Muslim. And you start just accusing them for that. And you never actually spoke with them. That's the movie speak about it. So I love this movie a lot. It's called The Square. So out of all the people that saved you, what were their religions? Uh, I had um, Daniel's Jew, Megan is Christian, Justin Jew, Natasha Jew, and the, the But isn't that amazing? Like out of your main four, it was like three Jews and a Christian. It's true. And you were taught to hate it's Christians true. and Jews. But also, like you know, besides of them, like you know, there was Muslims who was trying to help out. Putin's even was trying to help amazing. out, like in a lot of places. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you journal or have another daily practice? I love I love writing, and as I told you from in the beginning, that uh, writing became like a therapy for me, and uh, it helps me just to have an agreement with myself. So every day I was just trying to write something about what happened to my life. Uh, and um, who knows? I'm trying also to write about my experience in the United States. Um, as a refugee, I discovered a lot of things here that I never thought about it, that I will have such situations. Um, my first meal in the United States was at KFC. <laughs> but <laughs> so that was an, an experience, and I wrote about it. So every day I'm just trying also to write about my emotions, about what's happening in my country. And I um, maybe in one day I will publish a second book. Who knows? I know. It's, it's that duality must be really hard of so much freedom. And knowing that your family doesn't have it. Um, but that means you just have to make it worth it. Yeah. Um, current obsession. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, right now I started listening to a lot to Israeli music and Turkish music. And although that I didn't understand any word of what they're saying, but I love it. I love that. I love it. I love the melody. I I was in the flight actually in like uh, yesterday from Miami to Los Angeles and all the hours I was just listening to this Israeli uh, Turkish music. Uh, so if you open my YouTube, you'll find Arabic music, English music, Israeli and Turkish. Is there one song that you're particularly like obsessed on right now? Yes, but I don't know the m the m like how to pronounce it because it's 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 written Will you send us the link and we can post it on I the can, website definitely. so people have access? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? I check my phone if there is a message from my family. Uh, the way how I communicate with my family is <coughs> using uh, WhatsApp. I basically waiting for them to record a voice message, and then I listen to the voice message, and then I communicate with them. They can't call me because the internet in Yemen is very slow, um, and the only way how they can like communicate with me is just by recording voice messages. You have been such an inspiration to talk to. I hope everyone listening finds you inspiring. It's like if. If you don't inspire people to start, you know, fighting for what they believe in and also just taking action. I thought one of the most interesting things you said today about, you know, how your team inspired you past the fact that they just saved you was you realize you can make anything happen. And especially coming from your culture, but really anyone here, too. I know people struggle even in the U.S. It's like I have so many ideas. I have so many beliefs. I have so many this. But like they're 
they don't know what to do next. And I love that you're just like, you can make it happen. And you're right. If these people could somehow extricate you from that situation with no direct connections, just by trying and figuring it out, we can all do anything. I'll tell you something. I was speaking at Stanford University and there's two students from Stanford University. They heard the story and they said like, you know what? We want to be like Daniel and Megan, Natasha and Justin. Uh, and they asked me like if I know anyone who need help and there is a dear friend of mine from Sudan his name is Mohammed Abu Bakr <laughs> and they know about his situation and they helped him out and now he lives in Washington DC so and just it's just tell you that you know even if you are just student or even if you think that you can do it these people it's not me it's not the exception there is many people who was able to and I and that's why I like uh to speak about my story because it inspired people like you know, to do the same thing and they know that they can do things like this. And obviously the power of communication, it just like, I mean, Daniel really saved, just like you said, because of his grandmother's story. Mm -hmm. He ended up saying, so your story is going to hopefully save others. And I mean, it's just such a beautiful notion that by you from as a child, and it kept getting heightened, changing and shifting your energy, what you believe in, how you act, you know, what your perceptions are, the energy around you shifted. And, you know, you had this weird portal to, like, go somewhere else. I yeah. mean, if you want to be, if, if I'm getting a little woo-woo about it. But still, um, it's a really, thank you for sharing your story. No, thank you so much for, for hosting me. And I need to tell you, honestly, that the, um, the environment here, like, you know, this is, like, for me, it's so peaceful. <laughs> like, I, I love this place. I think I can stay here for a couple of days. You're welcome it's to. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place. I, I usually do interviews and I start feeling tired, but this is, like, something where I start feeling, like, I can speak hours and hours. Oh, well, I mean, we can go on. I'm just <laughs> no, I mean, that's amazing. And we're pleased to come as much as you want while you're here. And anytime you're here, this is your home. You should know that anytime you're in LA. This is definitely your home. Thanks so much. Um, no, thank you. And you guys, everyone stay tuned because he is going to do his personal practice, which is going to be a version of gratitude. He's going to tell you something he does every day. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do subscribe and always write us a review. It's so unbelievably helpful. And go to our close Facebook group, Dentalks Podcast, because... There is so much to uncover off of this one, and we will also post the link of that song and many other treasures. So thank you so much, and thank you, Muhammad. So now Muhammad's going to lead us in his personal practice, which are moments of gratitude we can all learn from. There's two things that I'm, I'm every day I'm thankful for, and I always pray for God for gave me that. The first thing is my disability. Um, I was always angry from God in some way why he gave me such disability and I was always thinking about the reason behind it. And when you think about it more and more, without this disability, I wouldn't be here with you today. It's because of my disability I learned how to speak English and because of that I was able to read, to meet Luke and read the Bible and then able to communicate with people on Facebook and today I'm here with you. So I'm very thankful that God gave me such a disability. Um, and the second, second thing, which is, I'm live. Uh, I w when I was in the bathroom, I was just thinking, like, you know, I didn't do a lot of things in my life. I didn't listen to the new album of the sad singer. Honestly, I was thinking about my family. Like, you know, I didn't kiss my mom. I didn't hug her. Like, And all these moments came to you. And then when you remember that you have another chance and you, you live tomorrow, you need to enjoy life. Uh, when I came here, Justin told me something. He told me, when I see you just, like, in the street, I feel like you're like a baby, like who's looking for things for the first time, and you have this love for life in a lot of ways. And I said, that's because of my experience. Like, you know, I know that I need to enjoy every moment, and I need to live every day as the last life. Um, 
and last thing honestly it's just like these four people who helped me out it's like an angel for me and i'm really thankful for them and the way how they helped me out and always try to surround you yourself with the good people because from their good vibe um i stay always hopeful and thank you so much again for inviting me thank you thank you Ted Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also, wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks podcast, and join us there. <laughs>